If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Jonah chapter 2 this morning. Jonah chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Add one more week here in Jonah 2 before we move into Jonah 3. And all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> but in Jonah chapter 2, we'll pick up reading in verse 1. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there as we read together. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. O Lord, my God, when I, my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's Word. In 2017, DC Comics uh, released a live-action movie based upon one of the characters I remember watching in cartoons as a child called Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman was always a very interesting superhero to me, not because she was a woman. Listen, don't leave saying she's a chauvinist, right? Um, but it was always very interesting because of the vehicle in which she rode. It was this invisible jet. Right? And so here's Wonder Woman. You have this, this Amazonian woman dressed in this red and gold and blue outfit with a tiara on her head, seated in the clouds, riding through the air right, in this invisible jet. And you're like, well, the jet's invisible, but you're not. So what's going on with the woman floating in midair, hurtling at us at speeds of light? Right? Strange to me. But in that live action remake uh, or, or, or story that they told in 2017 uh, when Wonder Woman made her debut on the big screen, um, it basically told the story of her coming out of this very isolated region where she was from and into the, 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 the midst of the First World War and fighting alongside Western forces as they confronted the advancing German armies. But at the end of the movie... Okay, at the end of the movie, she confronts the Greek god of war whose name was Ares. And in a plot twist you may or may not have seen coming, Ares was not the character you would have thought that he was as you followed the plot line through the movie. But Ares in the movie was actually a very unsuspecting character. Right? He, didn't, he wasn't embodied in the person that you thought that he would be, he was unassuming. And, it, and, and it, it, it captured my mind at that moment to think that, you know what, sometimes false gods, they don't show up on the scene of our lives with their true intentions front and center. They don't always appear in our lives 
as they actually are. Often false gods show up on the scene of our lives in very unsuspecting, very unassuming ways, but they end up wreaking all sorts of havoc and creating all sorts of destruction and damage in our lives. And this is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons perhaps, throughout the Old Testament, God continually warns His people against idolatry. In the ancient world, church, listen, idols, false gods, they were oftentimes these mythological figures that were many times represented by statues made by the hands of craftsmen out of wood or out of stone or out of precious metals. In the Greek pantheon of gods, you had gods for all sorts of things, okay? If you go back and look up the Greek pantheon, you've got the god of war like Ares, or you've got the goddess of beauty, Aphrodite. You've got the god of pleasure, Dionysus, and the god of wealth, Plutus. In many other ancient cultures as well, you had these idols or these false gods of the nations, of the nations. In other words, every nation, every people, every ethnic group essentially had their own deity that they would worship. And oftentimes they would worship these deities in order to secure certain things for themselves, like protection from invading armies, or protection from disease and pestilence, or protection from the collapse of an economy, whatever it was. But in each of these instances, whether it be in this Greek pantheon or all the other ancient gods that you can find across the ancient world, these gods, they represented the heart desires of the people. See, these gods emanated from the hearts of fallen people. Which means that, listen, while the gods of our day, the idols of our day, they may or may not be represented by sticks and stones and precious metals, but they continue to emanate from the hearts of fallen humanity. That's why John Calvin in his day said our hearts are like idol factories. In other words, they keep churning out new gods that we would give our attention and affection and our allegiance and our love and our loyalty to. Right? These false gods that would suit our fancy. And these, many of these idols are the same desires ancient peoples had oftentimes just wrapped in new packaging and presented before us for our allegiance so some people continue to worship Aries right you see it on the continent of Europe this week as they continue to worship Aries the god of war who would indeed give them victory which would ultimately result in their power or control over other peoples Some continue to worship the God of Aphrodite and they center their lives on appearances and approval that they could receive from other people on account of it. Some people continue to worship Dionysus, the God of pleasure, as they center their lives on leisure or on comfort. And some people continue to worship Plutus, the God of wealth, as they center their lives on the status associated and connected to more possessions, more privilege, and more wealth. But the sad reality right, that the Bible testifies to throughout its pages is that these idols, these false gods, they are not mighty to save. They are incapable of saving. And this is the final truth that leads Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 to make this declaration in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Two weeks ago, we saw that Jonah comes to this conclusion because of God's sovereignty. 
up in verses 1 to 3, whenever Jonah's there and he says, you cast me into the deep and you brought me up out so that whatever God delivers us over to, he's able to deliver us from. Because sometimes God delivers us over to some pretty rough stuff because of our sin and our running and our folly and our failure. Last week we saw the second truth that Jonah lays down that leads him to this conclusion, the grace of God. Because in the middle of Jonah's prayers, he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. The bars are closing on him forever. He says, yet you brought my life up from the pit. The grace of God stretched down to find me and lift me out of the muck and the mire that I had made of my life. And this week, we see the third truth that leads Jonah to this conclusion of salvation belongs to the Lord, and it's the exclusivity of God. And this comes to light as Jonah reflects on the reality that it's only the living God who is able to save. These lifeless gods, they are not able to save. And we see it particularly in verses 8 and 9 where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. And the first thing that I think we learn from what Jonah has to say about these false gods in verses 8 and 9 is this, is that idols, church, they are not worthy of our worship. They're not worthy of our worship. You see, the specific warning that Jonah gives here is against paying regard to idols. Paying regard to idols. Now, to pay regard to something or to pay regard to someone is essentially to have feelings of great respect or great admiration, to consider those individuals or those things to be of great value or significance or worth, to hold them in high esteem, to give them your attention, to gaze at them attentively, to follow their every move, to raise your affections and your love for them, to elevate them to a place of primacy in your life. That's what it is to pay regard to something or someone. So if you want me to put it more simply, I could say it this way. To pay regard to something or someone is to offer them your attention and your affection. And in a religious sense, that involves your worship. Your worship. But the, but the, 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 the challenge for us is this, is that the human heart was made to worship something. There's a, there's a vacuum in the human heart that gravitates toward the worship of something or someone, centering our attention, centering our affection on someone. And when the living God is removed from that equation as the object of our worship, we devote our lives to lifeless idols. And the reason I say they are lifeless is because the consistent testimony of the Old Testament and new in certain places is that these gods, these gods are dead. Psalm 135, verses 15 to 17. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, the idols of the nations, they are are silver and gold. In other words, precious metals that would have significance and value. He says, the work of human hands, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. See, the point of the psalmist in Psalm 135 is that the idols of the nations, though they are cast at these precious metals of silver and gold, which ought to have great value and worth, they are altogether worthless and have no value but to be melted down and to be used as currency. 
Because they were made by human hands. And anything that's made by human hands, church, does not have the breath of, of life in it. So they're lifeless. He says they, they have ears, but they don't hear anything. They have eyes, but they, they don't see anything. They have mouths, but there are no words emanating from them. Right? They, 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 they have mouths, but there's no breath in them. There's no breath in their lungs to animate them to life. They are lifeless. They are dead. And they are worthless. It's how the psalmist in Psalm 135 describes them. They have never been, are not now, worthy of our attention, affection, respect, admiration, our following, or our worship. We ought not pay regard to them. That's what Jonah's warning against. Those who pay regard to idols. So what that means for us, if we want to bring it into our context today is this, is that the procurement of power, they're not worthy of respect and esteem. Rising to positions of authority over other people, they're not worthy of your pursuit. Appearance and approval, they are not worthy of your love. Leisure and comfort are not worthy of your ultimate loyalty. Wealth and status, they're not worthy of the pursuit of your life. None of those things is worthy of your worship, worthy of you paying regard to them. The first thing we learn is that idols are not worthy of our worship. We ought not pay regard to them. We ought not give our attention to them, our affection to them, our esteem to them. They're not worthy of it. But here's the reason why. Not only are they lifeless, church, but listen, they are also powerless. Idols are powerless to provide what they promise. Powerless to provide what they promise. Jonah calls these false gods, in verse 8, he calls them vain idols. Vain idols. In English, the word vain, it literally means to have no value, to be ineffectual, to be useless, or to be empty. The Hebrew word carried very similar connotations of falseness or emptiness. These idols are false gods, Jonah says. They're empty, they're useless, they have no value, they're altogether worthless. Essentially what Jonah is saying is that idols are like empty calories. Okay? Now listen. I don't know what your favorite snackage is, okay? But I can, I can put away some potato chips, okay? Um, especially like some, some Zaps potato chips. Some of y'all, y'all don't know about Zaps, right? Some of y'all not from South Louisiana, y'all don't know anything about Zaps. But Zaps Cajun tater crawls, right? right? They're just amazing potato chips, okay? So I could put away some potato chips. And so for me, it's always dangerous once the bag is opened, Okay, because once the bag is opened, I'm like Lay's, right? No one can eat just one, okay? And I'll just keep funneling those suckers into my mouth. But the, the crazy thing is, and listen, this is true confessions this morning. Please do not judge me. Those of you who are paleo, organic, whatever you are, right? But I have sat down at moments in my life, and you might call it emotion eating. You can call it whatever you want. But I've hammered a whole bag of potato chips, right? Half a bag of party-sized potato chips. You know what I'm saying? And I, I can just continue to eat those things. They're addictive to me. And the reason I can, one of the reasons I continue to eat them because they taste good to me, but also because they do not fill me up. Because they're full of just empty calories, right? 
So you can eat a whole bag of potato chips and still be ravenously hungry because you're just consuming all sorts of empty calories. They're hollow. And that's what Jonah says about idols. He says they're like empty calories. You can worship at the altar of power or of beauty or you can worship at the altar of status or of leisure, and you can find yourself walking away from that altar just as empty as whenever you first knelt down in front of it. Because they are unable, because they're lifeless, they're unable to fill us, they're unable to satisfy us. But look what Jonah says, he doesn't say those who pay regard to idols forsake the living God for lifeless gods. Although that is true, that's not what Jonah says. Look closer at what Jonah says. Jonah says those who pay regard, those who give their worship to idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. They turn their backs on, they abandon and walk away from their expectation of what the Hebrews would have known as chesed. And you gotta got growl with it, everyone, right, when you say that word. Right, but that word literally meant this loyal love, covenant love, steadfast love, God's loving kindness, his never ending, never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, unshakable, always and forever love. That God had pledged himself to his people with chesed, that he would be loyal as the day is long to his people whom he had set his affection upon. And what Jonah says is those who worship these false gods, they abandon any expectation of receiving that kind of loyalty from those because the gods that they were worshiping were lifeless and loveless. They could not love them. That's what Jonah says. He doesn't say you you abandon the living God for lifeless gods. He says you abandon any hope of experiencing the most satisfying and fulfilling love that you can imagine. The most satisfying and fulfilling experience that any human heart can ever know. You turn your back on that because those gods, they can never love you. And so they're always going to leave you lifeless just like they are. In 2017, also in 2017. Uh, I didn't realize that until I just said it, right? Uh, But in 2017, uh, King's Kaleidoscope, a former worship band of what was formerly Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which itself had some idolatry issues and the senior leadership of that church, which caused it to implode because of the abuse of authority and power. But they released a song that featured uh, a Christian rapper named Propaganda. I love that name, right? And that song was entitled Playing With Fire. Playing With Fire. And there's a lyric in that song that sticks in my mind every time I listen to it. And it comes toward the end of the song as they sing these words. No one is safe from the gods we create. They all turn on us. Every single one of them turn on us at some point. Because they cannot provide what they promised us. 
They're incapable of loving us and leading us to life. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 135, after he talks about the lifelessness of those gods, listen to what he says in the very next verse. In verse 18, he says, Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. He says, those who pay regard to them, those who worship them, those who trust in them, those who create them, and center their lives around them. He says they begin to reflect the very characteristics of those gods themselves. They become more and more empty, more and more hollow, more and more lifeless. Because they've abandoned any experience, hope of experiencing love because those gods cannot love them. Listen, consider how this works for a minute. Listen, the idol of power or of control or of authority, it promises us something. And what it promises us is this, the respect and the admiration of people. That's what it promises us. That you would be admired and you would be respected by others if you had power or if you had control. However, however, the things that we often do to get and to keep a hold of power or of control make us into the kind of people that most human beings made in the image of God do not respect and do not admire. When power and control become the center of our lives. See, one of the, one of the ways you can know, one of the ways you can know that you have bowed at the altar of an idol is that you're willing to do anything to get it and anything to keep it. In other words, you're willing to cross all kinds of lines that you had drawn, all kinds of boundaries you'd established in order to get what you want or keep what you want. And so often, those who center their life around power and control, what happens is they're willing to do anything to get and keep it, and so they end up, they end up destroying other people. Destroying them. So they step on them or they step over them and they operate in ways that use authority and power not to serve those who are under it, but to use those who are under it to serve their own selfish desires. And that makes them into the kind of people that only other people who worship at the altar of power and authority and control respect and admire. Everyone else despises them. Because every God we create one day turns on us. Think of it this way, the, god, the goddess Aphrodite, or the idol of appearance, or you might say performance as well. That if you look a certain way, or if you're successful enough, people will place the stamp of approval on the file folder of your life. I love the way Tim Keller said it in his book, Counterfeit Gods, as he spoke about appearance and beauty. He said, physical beauty is a pleasant thing. But if you deify it, if you make it the most important thing in a person's life or the life of a culture, then you have Aphrodite, not just beauty. You have people and an entire culture constantly agonizing over appearance, spending inordinate amounts of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating character on the basis of it. That someone must be put together well because they're put together well. 
Listen, you can push all your chips to the center of the table on appearance. And center your life on it. Like, listen, I'm not going to use any names here because some of you people might know this person. Right, but I was at Kroger um, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, doing some grocery shopping. And I was in the kind of deli section where the fresh cheese and fresh meats are, and I was picking up some stuff for the family. Um, and this lady walks up on my left-hand side, and I, I, I look over and glance, and I'm like, okay, and I, I, I keep picking up uh, like situational awareness, you know what I'm saying? Uh, pick up the rest of my stuff, uh, put it in the cart, and then she's like, hey, Shannon. And I was like, I had that moment where I'm like, Am I supposed to know you? And then it clicked in my mind. And I was like, oh, that uh, doesn't look like. Because you, you, man, you could tell, okay? Right? She'd had some stuff nipped and tucked and tightened and pulled. Okay? Right? She didn't look like herself. It was very very evident that she had had some work done almost so, so much so that I almost didn't recognize her. Right? That's what Keller's talking about. Whenever you deify it, you put it at the center of a life, the center of a culture, then you're willing to do anything to attain it or achieve it or to hold on to it as you age. But when someone who's more beautiful or more successful comes along, someone with a fresher face or more promising talent, what happens? Then the approval you thought you had from those people, it, 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 it washes away. Right? It's like being pulled out to sea as another wave crashes on the seashore. Just like the sand gets sucked out. And what you thought was deep approval from those people because of the way that you looked or how successful you were in life ends up being just a shallow sense of self-esteem or self-worth that washes away because the gods we create always, always turn on us. The idol of leisure, it promises us comfort. And listen, while there's nothing wrong, church, with hobbies or leisure pursuits, okay, I'm going to pursue some leisure this spring whenever the bass begin to move shallow and I can target them with my lures, okay? All right, and I'll, pursue, I'll pursue some of that this spring. But when they are the center of our attention, center of our affection, and spend, as, as Keller said, inordinate amounts of time and money on it, we deify it and move it to the center of our lives, what happens is this. The comfort we were seeking through leisure ends up dissipating, and here's why. Because oftentimes, whenever leisure is our God, and we're deifying it because we want to be comfortable, what happens is we end up driving other people away. Right, driving other people away, which creates relational strife, which disrupts the equilibrium or comfort we've been pursuing. Because I don't know if the last time you checked, but relational strife is not comfortable. And therefore, I've known many a men who are now divorced because they could not leave the woods or get off the water. Many a men who are divorced now because they wouldn't leave the track or come out of the shop. 
Because what they were, that was the most important thing to them, and it began to create relational strife. See, the gods we create, what becomes most important and moves to the center of our life, always turns on us and makes us lifeless just like it is. You want me, you want me to go on? Probably not. I think you get the picture. See, when idols or false gods, when they take a grip on a culture sometimes, they take a life of their own, and they begin to shape the way that we see the world. And it becomes destructive. You see it in our age through individualism. Of the greatest good being what I feel personally and being able to live that out in my truth. You see it in, listen, this might be getting close to what Jonah was experiencing in his day but you see it in fundamentalism and nationalism as well. Listen, we can sit in here all day and shake our fist at the secularist and the individualist, but also there is a false notion of God in fundamentalism as well that says if I can just keep my nose clean and if my scruples are more significant than your scruples and tighter up, I'm wound up tighter than you are, then I must be in cahoots with God because God approves of me because of how fundamental I am. And that is a false God as well. So church, idols are not worthy of our worship and they can never promise or provide what they promise. They're powerless to do it. They're vain. They're empty. They're lifeless. And we ought not pay regard to them. So, how, so every single one of us in the room, I'm going to close with this, every single one of us in the room, we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make between forsaking our hope of steadfast, loyal love in our life, the love of God in our life, or forsaking our idols. It's a choice every single one of us faces. We can choose to forsake the Lord for the sake of our idols, or we can forsake our idols for the sake of the Lord. And forsaking our idols means that we have to begin to tear down. In the Old Testament, whenever Israel was worshiping at the altars of the gods of the other nations, she went to the high places, the hilltops. And so often in the Old Testament, God's refrain to His people is, tear down the high places. Tear down the altars at which you've been worshiping. And that's how you forsake those idols. But listen, if we're going to tear down those high places in our own lives, whatever it is that's risen to that place of primacy, that place of priority for us, then rather than paying regard to empty, lifeless, worthless idols, Jonah would say, pay regard to the Lord. Pay regard to the Lord. Look at how he prays in verse 9. Because if we're going to pay regard to the Lord, we must... First of all, lay down our lives. In verse 9, Jonah says, He will sacrifice to you, speaking to God. What I have vowed, I will pay. Now, listen, it's most likely Jonah's not referring here to making an animal sacrifice. He's not saying in the belly of the whale, saying, I'm going to go and make the sacrifice you prescribed back there in the book of Leviticus, God. 
But rather what he is saying is, I will sacrifice to you. And then he goes on to tell us in the next line of that poetry how he's going to sacrifice to the Lord by keeping the vow that he has made to God. And what is that vow? We can only speculate based on what happens in chapter 3, but I believe it's a pretty certain speculation that his vow is to go where God had sent him to begin with, to Nineveh. That he would keep his vow. That he would be obedient to God and go where God had sent. So in other words, he would lay down his life. He wasn't just going to bring an animal and lay it upon the altar. He was going to lay himself down and say, God, use me for your purposes. See, both the true God, the living God, and these lifeless gods, they will ask you for your life. They will both ask you for your life. And while one will fill it up, the other will use it up. Which is why I, I, I think you see a picture of this, of what's going on here in Jonah chapter 2, carried forward in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, whenever Paul writes, the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, he says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, worship, church, is not only paying regards to the Lord, is not only what we do with our lips whenever we gather in this room on Sunday mornings, but it's what we do with our lives whenever we leave it. We lay our lives down. We lay them down. Saying, God, this is my spiritual act of worship. I'm offering myself up to you because I was made to worship something and everything else that I worship is going to destroy me. And so, God, I choose to worship you because only you are going to give me life. And with, only with you will I experience love. None of these other gods is able to love me back. So I lay my life down for you. But if we're going to pay regards to the Lord as well, then second of all, we must live with gratitude. In verse 9, Jonah says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving. A voice of thanksgiving. What's Jonah giving thanks for whenever he's still in the belly of the fish? Because he's not yet in the gastric juice on the beach. Okay? What's Jonah giving thanks for here? Or perhaps Jonah's giving thanks for the fact that God appointed the fish and that Jonah is now in the belly of the fish and not at the bottom of the ocean. Perhaps. Or perhaps Jonah's also giving thanks for the anticipated deliverance that's to come when the fish vomits him out. He's already prayed with this degree of certainty that I will once again be in your presence, God. I will once again look upon you in your holy temple. My prayers have risen to you in your holy temple. I will not be cast out of your sight forever, but you will rescue me. And so before he's ever even vomited on the beach, Jonah, before he ever experiences what we might say is the final deliverance, Jonah's already giving thanks. And listen, church, a life that is laid down for God's purposes can never just be a life that is about duty. That is about ought to's. But it must be a life that is lived out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving. 
It's a life that rises from a place of being rescued. And Jonah recognizes he has been rescued from his just judgment. God's just judgment. And listen, the only, the only, the only thing that will fill your heart, flood your heart with that kind of gratitude it's not reading the Bible and say, seeing I ought to do this and I ought to do that and I ought to do the other. But reading the Bible and seeing he did this and he did that and he did the other to rescue me. And while I have not yet experienced final deliverance, that's still waiting. Still coming one day because one day the clouds are going to part and a white horse is going to emerge right, with a rider on it whose robe is dipped in blood. He's got tats on his legs, right? King of kings, Lord and lords. He's got a name that nobody else knows. He's coming, he's returning to deliver all of his people one day. To put an end to all war. To put an end to all injustice. To put an end to all sin. That day's not here yet. But by faith in that one who came the first time and laid his life down for us, by stretching his arms out on the cross, we are able to, with a voice of thanksgiving, say, God, here's my life. While I'm in the waiting room, while we're in this holding pattern, maybe in an invisible jet, I lay my life down to you. Use me. Use me. I thought of a, try to think of a way of illustrating this, and the best one I could come up with is out of the Bible, which is always good. But in Joshua chapter twenty-four, near the end of the near the end of the book, Joshua has that famous moment in which he says, "As for me, as for me." Joshua has an "as for me" moment in his life. As they've come across the river and they've come into the land of promise, as they've been engaged in conflict, they've seen God do miraculous things. He calls the people together and calls them to make a decision. He says in verse 15 of Joshua 24, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites. Well, but as for me, in my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. See, an as for me moment in your life is a time in which you draw the line in the sand and you say, you say that you will pay regard to the Lord and the Lord only. That he will be the one to whom your attention is given. He will be the one for whom your affections boil. That he will be the one that you Fix your gaze on attentively and follow his every move. There's an as for me moment. And if we're to pay regard to the Lord, we lay our lives down, live with gratitude and thanksgiving. And we say not only in one singular moment in time, but every day whenever we wake up, as for me, as for me, as for me, as for me. And for some of you here this morning, this means having an as for me moment, perhaps for the very first time. For the very first time. Right, maybe you've heard the gospel proclaimed before. You've heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You've heard that he laid his life down for you. 
You've heard that He was God before the foundations of the world. The second person of the triune God. That He was clothed in human form, in flesh, and He became like one of us in every way excepting only sin. And that He took on the form of a servant, the very nature of a servant, and that He gave His life up for us at the cross. He lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose from the grave. And now He extends an invitation to any and all who would come to give them life and love, something the idols cannot give. Now you've heard that before, but you've never had an as for me moment and said, I'm going to abandon leisure. I will abandon power. I will abandon control. I will abandon my appearance. I will abandon my performance to embrace the life and love given to me by God through His Son. And so this morning, maybe the as for you moment is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been baptized, but you've never said as for me. Because somebody convinced you to get in a tub of water at some point. Maybe you've joined a church, but you've never really said as for me. Maybe you've stood before the church and you've dedicated yourself to raising your children in the love of God, under the authority of His Word and in fellowship with His people, but you've never said as for me because everything else keeps winning out in your life. Have you ever laid down your idols so you can embrace the living God? That's the invitation this morning. Pay regard to Him. Pay regard to Him. Not to power, not to control, not to leisure, not to comfort. So that every time you open up your social media feed, you will not pay regard to appearance or to approval. And every time you browse on Amazon, I know y'all shop, or at a local shopping center, you say, I'm not, we're not pay regard to wealth or status or possessions, but I will pay regard to the Lord. You see in Jonah chapter 2 a degree of repentance in Jonah's life, but we'll discover very quickly once we get to chapters 3 and 4 that it was not, he has not yet come full circle. But he has come to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your sovereignty, which exercises itself in our lives sometimes. <sighs> Father, as the, as the Puritans used to say, sometimes your providence is like a sunny sky and other times it's like a thunderstorm. But we thank you that in everything, God, that you are orchestrating our lives for our good. We thank you for your grace that while we were sinking deep, deep in sin, that you reached down to rescue us from our foolishness. And we thank you that there is no other name given by which men must be saved because there is no other God who promises us their love and no other God who promises us life. As your people would turn from our idol whatever idolatry has gripped our hearts, whatever we've made center and central to our lives, 
and that we would say this morning, as for me. With a voice of thanksgiving because we've been rescued and we're awaiting a final deliverance and that we would lay our lives down as a living sacrifice to be used by you for your glory and the good of the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.